You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the word of God. And so every time we read the Bible, we are actually listening to God speak to us. And today we again have that privilege of listening to God speak. So we're going to be listening to what he has to say to us from Mark 12, and we'll be beginning at verse 18. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up his offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring, and last of all, the woman died. Now, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? And Jesus spoke to them, Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. Almighty and loving Father, may the words I speak now be your words. May you graft them into our hearts and work in us so as to bring forth in us the fruit of good works. And we pray this for the honour and praise of your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, today I want to begin by getting you to come with me in your imagination. So imagine this, it's the end of your life. You've been a normal human being. Life has been full of the things that are the norm for humans. That is, you, uh, you've been born, you've had a childhood, perhaps you've been married. Certainly relationships have been rich and precious. Uh, Some have not been so rich and precious, perhaps. Some have been painful. But there have been wonderful moments in life. And there have also been times of disaster and trial, perhaps even pain. But all of that is coming to an end. Life is now ending for you. Imagine this situation. Sisters and brothers in Christ, friends and visitors, death is the great painful reliever, revealer. It is, is it not? 
That is, does not death show life? No matter how life has been for us, death lays bare, death exposes the reality of life despite all of its great riches. You see, at the point of death, we have nothing. Believer or not, we have nothing in our hands, we have nothing to offer. And so as we explore today's passage, uh, we are going to find ourselves exploring the reality of death. Not a great way to start a sermon, is it? You're not really ahead at this point. (laughs) But we are going to look over the shoulder of a particular man and hear what he thinks about death. In other words, we're going to hear from Jesus through a human being, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the author of life for all who believe in him. And he's going to expose for us what God the Father has in store past death. That's where we're going to get to, but we've got a little bit of travelling before we get there. So please open your Bibles uh, at Matthew 12 verse 18 and... I want you to join me as we explore this passage together. Let's listen closely to Jesus and let's learn from him as he gives his views on this great conundrum for those of us who are alive but who know we'll inevitably face death. And let's see if there is any life, any light, any comfort for us as we face the prospect of death. So let's get started. Now, I want you to think about the current world for a moment. Uh, If we survey the world now... Uh, we could find a myriad of different views about what happens at death and after death, couldn't we? If we ran a little uh, um, quest and asked people, uh, think about your own background, for example, and the influences on you. What do you think about what happens at death? What do you believe? Often it will be inherited from your family or in reaction to your family. Where do your views come from? Are they scientific? Are they religious? Are they cultural? Are they something else? Just think about it. For example, we might think that death will bring some sort of ongoing existence. Or we might think that, uh, well, it's just totally annihilation. That's the end. There's nothing more. We've had our few years in life. That's it. Or you might believe in an existence that is somehow continuous from your present existence that goes on somewhere after death somehow. Well, there was a similar diversity in the world back in the first century as well. Just as you could survey your friends at work or in the workplace or wherever and find diversity, so you found diversity in the world of the New Testament. And our passage for today explores that back then. It does so by focusing on a prominent Jewish view that was taken by an influential priestly group called the Sadducees. So if you know a little bit about the Sadducees, today you're going to know a little bit more before we finish. So let me tell you a bit about them. First, the Sadducees were a Jewish priestly aristocracy. They were tied in with the chief priests in Israel. They were key power brokers in the first century Jewish world. Second, they were conservative um, politically. Third, They were pro-Roman. They wanted to restrict the assimilization ideas of some Jewish leaders. But that's not where the focus is today. 
Now, the focus in our passage, the one that we're going to look at today, is one particular belief that they held. Just one. You see, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. Despite the fact that the idea of resurrection appeared in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah 26, Ezekiel 37, and so on and so forth, they could not handle it. Despite the fact that the idea of resurrection appeared in the prophets, despite the fact that resurrection is present in the book of Daniel, despite the fact that the Old Testament often talks about the dead being gathered to their ancestors, like in the days of Abraham, despite all of this evidence put together, the Sadducees thought that such belief was a dangerous new belief. Not an old belief, but a new one, just that had come around the 1st or 2nd century BC. And they were convinced that you could not find it in the foundational books of the Old Testament. That is, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, those first five books. They said it's not there, the rest just suppositions. Now, given such convictions, see how we can see how Jesus was a risky man in their eyes, can't you? He is popular. Perhaps he was on the side of the Pharisees who believed in a physical resurrection. After all, he seemed to be advocating things that looked like resurrection. Therefore, perhaps the Sadducees wondered, is he on the side of the Pharisees, really? Anyway, verse 18 says that they venture out to meet up with Jesus and find out exactly what he thinks on the topic. And so they do it by painting a scenario that you can read of in verse 19. Have a look at it. I think it is a brilliant theological trap for Jesus. I think they've lined it up really well. It doesn't work as well as they would like, but nevertheless, I think it's, it's creative. Uh, they craft a trap by setting up the following situation, and they do it by using a human that they hold in great esteem, Moses. The picture they paint is laid out in verse 18. Have a look at it. And in a moment, we'll see what happens, but I want you to notice a few things here. First, Mark makes sure that his readers and us know who the Sadducees are and what they believe. As plain as day, he says in these first few verses that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. That is, in the manner of resurrection, they are theologically on the conservative end of the spectrum. They seem to think that such thought is dangerous and risky. What's more, they think they have good evidence in the first five books of the Bible, reputedly written by Moses and therefore core foundational books of the Jewish Bible. Although ideas like resurrection might appear later in later books, the Sadducees say, no, 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 they're not to be found in the core foundational books. Now, here's an exercise for you as you're wandering home today. Think, can you think of any place in the first five books that it does occur? Now, I should also tell you that the Sadducees could be considered the more elite religious group in Jewish society of their time. So there we have uh, just a bit of background for you. They were amongst the financially secure as well. And in an uncertain world in the New Testament, it's understandable that they might have had hesitations about promulgating, advocating ideas that might have a tendency to push people toward revolution and such things. You're getting a feel for them now? The Sadducees were testing Jesus and they wanted to know where he stands. Is he potentially disrupting the peace? Because we don't want that. 
Is he lined up with the Pharisees theologically? We don't want that either. Is he a worry for us? And that's the background to our passage here today. But there's more to observe. The next thing that I want you to observe is this. Mark records something clearly two times in this passage. He makes crystal clear in verse 18 that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. And we already know that Jesus clearly does believe in a resurrection. That's the first thing. The second thing is verse 24. Have a look at it. In between, uh, so here, though here, and uh, what we witness, there is, in my view, a brilliant theological trap. Honestly, when I read the New Testament, I think these guys, they've, they've spent a lot of homework doing this. It is very sharp. We witness, in my view, a quite brilliant theological trap here. Have a look at it. Verse 19. They say to Jesus, oh, look, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. So that was tradition. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. I want you to imagine you're number seven. But that's what happens. Everyone dies. And last of all, the woman dies too. (laughs) So it's an incredible story though, isn't it? Then comes the punchline. Look at verse 23. They say, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven married her? Basically, the Sadducees are clearly indicating that there's something ridiculous about the whole theory of resurrection giving their created examples. Do away with resurrection. It, it doesn't work, logically, at least. I think they think that their example indicates the stupidity of the whole argument. And that's where I love the verses that follow. Take a look at it, then listen to the response of Jesus. First, Jesus puts it to the Sadducees bluntly. In verse 24 and 25, he says this, Are you not deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, I wonder if it would help if uh, I at this point give you my Ocker translation. Uh, I will do it. Uh, I'll include verses 26 and 7. Here's my loose translation or paraphrase of these verses. Uh, I hope it gives you a feel for the tone of Jesus as well. It goes something like this. Strike, you guys are gullible. (laughs) You clearly don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I mean, for when they rise from the dead, marriage will be the last thing on their minds. Instead, it will be like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised... Haven't you read your Bibles? Haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the dead being raised? Haven't you read about the burning bush and how God spoke to Moses and said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's clearly not the God of the dead, is he? No, he's the God of the living. You're very badly deceived if you think that that's not right. Friends, I hope that can give you a feel for both the content and the rebuke of what Jesus says. 
Jesus is not giving a full-blown doctrine of resurrection here. No, but he is saying there will be changes. He is also saying there will be recognised continuity with our present existence. In other words, Jesus is making clear there will be a radical discontinuity between life and this life and the next. First, he says, they'll be like the angels in the sense that there will be no marriage for them. In other words, they'll no longer need to reproduce themselves. I think that's what's going on here. They will no longer need to continue the family. Their new existence will be continuous but different. They will be still themselves, but things will be different for them in this new age, this new situation. Jesus doesn't describe that difference. But we can rightly assume it won't be constrained by the things that constrain us now, like me, getting older. No, the things it will not be constrained by something even more important than getting older, that is sin and its consequences. We'll be free of that. However, we cannot really know much more than that from the New Testament, I think. We will be us, that is, I, Andrew Reid, will still be Andrew Reid. I, I don't know, I might have a new name, but I'll still be who I am now, if that makes sense, and there'll be continuity. We will be us, but things will be different and better beyond imagination. Death will be gone. Maybe I'll be a bit higher. <laughs> there'll be new bodies that can enjoy life in God's presence and place. God made us for such, and we will find it good. Rich, free from the downsides of our, our uh, sinful characters and full of God's presence and goodness. Friends, if you are Christian here today, if you believed in Jesus, trusted in him for this life and the life to come, you are immensely privileged. Immensely privileged. Your future will extend into eternity. That is what Jesus is saying here. And you will be immensely blessed in the presence of God. Now, out of argument, Jesus has promised eternity and immense blessing. So, friends, take it in. Soak it in. Rejoice in it. Jesus is very strong on this topic. He insists that the Sadducees do not know the Scriptures. That means anyone who advocates anything like the Sadducees these days, they do not know the Scriptures either. Now look at verse 27. Jesus is very straightforward here and very strong, and he puts things categorically and strongly. Look at verse 27, he says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly deceived. That's potent, isn't it? Jesus knew the critically important views of the Sadducees. He knew their power in society of those days, but he also knew that they were wrong and could be proved wrong from Scripture. They were deceived. They did not grasp the reality of God and his power. In one sense, they did not know the true and living God as he has presented himself in his world. Well, we've explored this passage. It's a doozy I got amongst all the others, isn't it? It's a good one, though. It's a good one for us to stop with. So 
In the last five minutes or so, let me briefly reflect on how to apply this passage to ourselves so, 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 so many years away from the events portrayed here. What do we do with it as people who want to live a Christian life? Here are my suggestions. If you are Christian, let me suggest a few things. First, be an avid student of the Scriptures. Read them regularly. Read them in depth. If you don't have a Bible reading program, go get one now and start on it tomorrow. I have had reading programs virtually from the day I became Christian at 18. Come and see me if you like. I help you. I've developed so many in my time. Uh, and I may have one that will work for you. But ask some of the leaders of our congregations as well. So that's the first thing. Get a good Bible reading scripture that takes you through scripture regularly. I've been doing it 40 plus, year, six, 40 plus years. And, and it's been the thing that I rarely miss. Two, be ready to allow scripture to amend your views, even if it hurts. And as I've read scripture, sometimes it's hurt. But God says, this is my will. This is what I want you to know of me. Three, if you are Christian, then look forward to God's eternity in his presence and in the presence of his son. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not, is not, is not the God of the dead. But the God of the living. And you can see that in verse 17. So eternity is there laid before you if you are his. Now, if you're not Christian here today, then I wonder if I can suggest two things for you to consider. First, hear the great news announced in the Christian gospel message. Jesus proclaims here the resurrection of the dead for both believers and non-believers. For both believers and non-believers. If you're not Christian then can I challenge you to read a life of Jesus such as that portrayed here in the book of Mark? Mark doesn't take that long to read. Jesus is making profound statements and presenting amazing promises. And if you do nothing else, read Mark's gospel for yourself with a Christian friend maybe and examine the claims of Jesus and think, do I believe this? And I pray that you turn to him in faith and obedience, and join us in relationship with God that will stretch out to eternity. So there we are for this week. Um, I do hope that you've heard well this passage and the words in them. In the midst of argument with the Sadducees, Jesus and his father offer a gift, the most amazing gift beyond the offer of his son, but made possible in the offering of his son. In the midst of argument with Sadducees, Jesus and his Father offer us a gift. And if we're Christians, we simply receive it as is. We simply receive the gift. It's a gift of overwhelming and sheer grace. And God tells us, I will raise you to life. He gives us a transformed existence. 
He throws open heaven and bestows on us life forevermore. He raises us from death by his power. How does he do this? He does it through his son. In this final outworking of what we have so far believed in by faith, by God's grace in Jesus, we are forgiven. By faith, if we're Christian, we appropriated all that Jesus had won. By faith, we believed that nothing could separate us from him. By grace appropriated by faith, we were then justified, made right with God. And in resurrection, what God does is he verifies all that has been done in his son. He vindicates all that the Christian has believed. He will vindicate it on that last day as well. Grace conquers and decimates the God-forsakenness his son suffered on the cross. Isn't that amazing? He vindicates all that Christians have believed. God's grace conquers and decimates God-forsakenness and makes it out of existence. That grace brings us into the presence of the eternal God, all because of Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it shortly, clearly and potently. He wasn't always like this, but he did here. To deny the resurrection, he says, is to deny, to deny that God is God. To deny the resurrection is to deny that God is God. So let us pray and thank God that he is God. Our Father, we thank you for this preaching of our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he makes so clear what sometimes others make so unclear. Thank you, Father, that your grace conquers and decimates any forsakenness we have felt from you. Thank you that your grace brings us into the presence of the eternal God because you sent your Son into the world. We thank you mostly for him, and we pray this in his name. Amen.